family for me. I spent many years being a part of this community, and it's just such a joy every time to see so many young people in here. I'm currently part of a, a small church plant in downtown Orlando, and, uh, you know, we have a, a pretty large age gap between people like me and then, like, the little ones in the church. So uh, it's encouraging to see um, just this growth. I just want to talk to you young people specifically that this is your church, and, uh, and you guys are going to take ownership of this church uh, in the coming years when, when, when the rest of us get too old. And, um, you know, I'm already on medication for high blood pressure and things like that. So, uh, so it's going to be your turn. All right. So pay attention. <laughs> cool. Well, I want to begin by telling you a quick story. When I was growing up um, as a child, um, this was in Taiwan, and my dad uh, kind of co-founded the company that he ran. And about once a year, this company, uh, they will put together like some kind of company outing uh, where all the employees and the kids would get together. Uh, we will either go on a trip together somewhere or put together some kind of uh, a team-building exercise where sometimes it will be some kind of athletic sporting tournaments that everybody gets to participate on a weekend. And I remember this one particular year, um, they kind of organized almost like a, like a mini uh, Olympics kind of sporting competition with a main event at the end of the weekend being this big softball game that everybody participated, right? So I was only about maybe six or seven years old. Uh, and uh, I remember the weeks leading up to this game, my dad would take the time to practice with me uh, on the weekends where we would stand in the field. I would be holding a bat, and my dad would pitch the ball at me, and I would try to hit it over and over and over again. And we would practice trying to get ourselves ready for this game. I remember on the day of this game, uh, I was waiting anxiously on the sidelines for my turn to go up and bat. Uh, and, uh, and, and this was a game that was mostly adults. I was just like the only kid there standing in that line. And I remember it was finally my turn, and I stepped onto the home plate, and I began to get ready for myself to bat, and the pitcher started, on the other team started to pitch the ball. And I remember every pitch just flew right by my face into the glove of the catcher, and I could not hit a thing. And feeling like I was performing so badly, I began to kind of panic a little bit, right? So just before the pitcher threw out the last ball that would have struck me out for sure, uh, I heard my dad actually call out from the sideline. He was like, wait, wait, we actually need to sub in a new pitcher. And then he, uh, he actually ran over into the middle of the field, and he relieved the pitcher of the other team, and he took over the position as a new pitcher. And then he made eye contact with me as if to say, just like how we practice, son. And then he tossed the ball out at me, and I swung, and I finally was able to hit it and began to make a run for the bases. Now, I don't remember what happened after that. I don't remember uh, even what the outcome of the game was. But what I do remember is that that moment became imprinted in my mind uh, for the rest of my childhood, knowing that my dad was there with me, that my dad knew me, and that he was always to go, be there, uh, to be there to, to have my back. So um, it wasn't until years later that I finally realized when I had grown up a little bit of what my dad actually did that day. Uh, he saw me standing there kind of in my complete lonesomeness and helplessness and, uh, and, 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 he saw, and, and trying to play softball basically with a whole bunch of adults that were taking the game a little bit too seriously for a six-year-old, right? Uh, and he simply took over just to take the ball so he could aim it at my bat so that if I were to just swing anything, I would hit something. So coming from a typical kind of Asian household, traditional Asian household, I've never heard my dad mutter the words, I love you, to me, right? 
but ver- uh, because verbal expressions of love like that is just very countercultural in our context. But I remember little memories of the little things like this that my dad did stuck with me for life, and I knew that he was always going to be there. So I know this is a silly example, right? But I think that examples like this gives us the exact kind of glimpse into the kind of God that we have, the Heavenly Father, that he too knows us deeply and is there for us in such ways. Uh, So this morning, as DL mentioned, we're going to be uh, continuing your series of Psalms for the summer. And we're going to be looking at Psalm uh, number 139 this morning. Uh, This is actually a pretty well-known psalm if you come from a church tradition uh, because uh, this psalm typically outlines several different theological characteristics of who God is and how these different attributes of God apply to us, who we are, and what we are called to in this life. Uh, So before we actually jump into the psalm, I want to give you a little bit of background context on this psalm. Uh, So how many of you guys were here two weeks ago when Dr. Sung Chan Ra preached that prophetic word? Yeah, many of you guys, most of you guys are here, right? So, um, by the way, I am a big fan of Dr. Ra. He was actually on staff with us for a number of years, and uh, he's still a contributing author uh, for InterVarsity Press, our publishing branch. Uh, so I'm a big, big, big fan of him. Uh, I remember listening to his sermon, the recording from two weeks ago, and he touched on the fact that there are several different types of psalms, right? And we as a church are very familiar with typically the psalms of praise, Right, But as a church, we don't usually spend a lot of intentional time in psalms of what, what we call psalms of lament, uh, even though they comprise a very significant portion of the whole book. Right, So um, Psalm 139 is a psalm that we call a royal psalm. It's called a royal psalm because it is actually written by King David himself. Uh, and this psalm was actually meant to be sung. Did you know that? Uh, so you will notice if you look in your Bibles of Psalm 139, you will see that it is arranged in four different sections or in, in terms of poetry, it's in four different stanzas, which means different sections that have been arranged uh, with six verses each, almost like that of the lyrics of a song. And uh, Psalm 139 is also what we call a composite psalm because it is made up of several different elements. If you read through the psalm, you will see that it has the elements of praise, of thanksgiving, of lament, confession, meditation, and prayer. So it's got a lot of rich stuff in this psalm. So I'm really excited that we get to talk about and dive into this psalm today. So I'm going to read it for you guys. And as I read, I want you to pay attention to each of these four sections of six verses each. Uh, to see uh, what these sections are perhaps trying to reveal to us about who God is. So if you can either turn with me to your Bibles to Psalm 139, or you can look on the screen. I'll be reading out of the NIV tr- uh, translation. So here's Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, will slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So these four sections uh, of this psalm kind of outlines God's characters in, in, in a way that may be familiar to us, right? So the theological terms behind these, these four different characters of God, uh, you may have heard them before, is God's omniscience, right? God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence, and God's omnibenevolence. Right, so in plain terms, these words simply means that God is a God who is an all-knowing God, that there's nothing that he does not know, that God is ever-present, that his presence is everywhere, nowhere, uh, or no, there's, he is not absent from anywhere. God is all-powerful, and lastly, God is eternally good, right? And for the purpose for this, uh, for this morning's message, uh, I have deduced these four main points that is outlined in your bulletin. So if you look in, on the inside of your bulletin we're going to be spending time unpacking these four truths that i have kind of derived from this passage and the, the four truths are one an incarnate god's intimate knowledge of humanity two a, a compassionate god's relentless pursuit of humanity the third point a powerful god's purposeful craftsmanship of humanity and lastly a stubborn god's commitment to restore humanity so we're going to talk about these one by one, okay? So starting with the first one, let's look back at the first section. That is verses 1 through 6. If you paid attention to that text, you would notice that as David is writing about God, he is describing God with many, many different action words, right? And these action words include words like to search, to know, to perceive, to discern, which also means to understand, right? To be familiar with, to hem in, which also means to surround, and lastly, to lay hand on, Right? If you're familiar with the church tradition, to the, the, the posture of laying on, on of the hand is usually done uh, in order to invoke the, the Holy Spirit, to send forth blessing, to cause healing to happen, or simply as a gesture of affirmation, right? That's why when we pray, when we send people out, we lay hands on them, and we extend our hands out there, right? But if you go back and look through these action words, you will notice a theme and also a repetition of a particular action word, and that is the word to know, so simply, this first section of this psalm communicates to us that God knows. God knows. 
specifically the God of the universe knows ultimately and intimately uh, knows us intimately from the inside out. That his knowledge of us transcends all time boundary. It was there before and it is there after. So let me ask you a question. How does the fact that there's this God that knows completely about us make us feel? How does it make you feel? I would imagine that if you were like me, maybe this makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe even a little uneasy or a little unsettling, especially if you are somebody who is maybe acutely aware of your sinful conditions or your brokenness or your imperfections. It is only natural then for us when we're facing a God who is all-knowing, it could cause a deep sense of conviction. Anybody feel me? Maybe. But what I want to argue is that this perhaps was not the primary intention that God wanted for us in terms of responding to this nature of his all-knowing character uh, to feel badly, to feel guilty, or maybe even shameful as a, resu- as a response to his all-knowing nature. Aside from the sense of conviction, I think God's all-knowing nature should first and foremost, and, and it's meant to first and foremost, bring us an immense sense of comfort a comfort in the knowledge that the God of the universe, that the almighty one who created all of heaven and earth, that almighty one that created all of life knows you, specifically you. So then why is it that so many of us so seldomly experience, get to experience this kind of comfort that is, that, that, that is provided by such a God? I think for many of us, our interactions with God oftentimes look more like our desperate attempt to try and follow a whole set of rules rather than to have a truly intimate relationship with a loving father who is good. Hence, our knowledge or to acknowledge that God is all-knowing over all of you can oftentimes feel more exposing than it does feeling affirming. But the way that this God knows us I think it's kind of like the way that my dad knew me in the midst of that softball game over 25 years ago. He knew exactly who I was. He knew exactly how I was feeling, and he knew exactly what I was capable of doing. And in his loving gesture, he pitches this ball that's kind of on a perfect trajectory that's been specifically tailored for me. So that if I were to just swing, I would be able to hit it. And in doing so, that I would know that my father was for me and not against me. Let me ask you this, friends. Is this not the kind of relationship each of us long to have with our God? I think that, in fact, this is exactly the way God knows us. And we know this because of his incarnate and intimate knowledge of humanity. And that, that knowledge has already been embodied through the life of Jesus. Okay, I want to say that the reason why the gospel story has infiltrated humanity for centuries, that thousands upon thousands have willingly laid down their lives for it, is because that the gospel message is a provocative message of what God went through to get to know us that is countercultural in every generation and counterintuitive in every mind. It is a message that says that God became one of us. God became one of us so that he might know us and that he might know us in the midst of our plight. Think with me for a moment about the life of Jesus, right? So, like, picture yourself if, if you're, like, in the position of the God of the universe, right? And you're about to send your son into this world. How would you have done it? I think God could have done it, like, a million different ways, right? Uh, I think he could have had a completely triumphant entry that is broadcasted across the sky. 
He could have sent Jesus as a full-grown man who was tall, dark, and handsome, right? Who would, would be the world's new conquering king, right? Uh, he could have been born into royalty and affluence full of titles, estates, and, 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 and reputations, right? Because the society that we live in, that's what we expect, right? We expect to see celebrities only in such glamorous fashions parading down the red carpet with endless security details and usually broadcasted over, over behind a TV screen for the whole world to see, right? And that's the reason why I've invited Taylor Swift to join us this morning. Everybody, welcome Taylor Swift. See? Everybody's like, what? Right? Because you don't expect someone like that to just show up into a building like this, right? All of us will be shocked, in fact, if Taylor Swift were to walk in through those doors and Chris Lee would have been like, why would you even grace me with this, with your presence, right? Because it completely violates our expectation of what a person of that status is like. But what's crazy is that God could have, while God could have done it any other way, God chose to come to us the way God actually chose to come to us could not have been more opposite of what the world had expected. See, not only did Jesus not come as a conquering king, but he came as a part of a minority people group in one of the most oppressive empires in the history of the world. Not only did he not, was he not born as a strong man with reputable family of affluence, but he was born as a helpless baby through a poor, unwedded teenage pregnancy in a highly shame-based society. Not only was he not born into a palace or a castle as you would expect for a king, but his birth actually took place in a scrappy and smelly animal barn with parents who are about to become exiled refugees that are running from persecution. Even when he did return home one day, people would find out where he was from, who he was from and he, they would say, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? You see, this God who chose to enter the world this way did so so that he would know the agony of humanity firsthand, that he would know the deep pains and sufferings of this world in every human level firsthand. God knows that his knowledge for us does not come from afar, but is embedded deeply within. He did not come as a conquering king, but he came as a suffering servant. And he did this so that he would know us and we would know him, and that his knowledge for us will be both deeply incarnate and scandalously intimate. Friends, this is not the Jesus that we know. The Jesus who wept with Mary, the Jesus who experienced physical pains and emotional sorrows, the Jesus who walked the earth and yet had no place to lay his head down to go to sleep, the Jesus who stood with the marginalized and the oppressed and flipped tables in the temple courts, and the Jesus who cried out how thirsty he was as he hung up there on that cross. Ultimately, the Jesus who willingly laid down his life for the love of this world. This is the all-knowing God who intimately knows you and me. Church, how does this characteristic of God make you feel now? Does it not bring us a deep sense of comfort and an immense level of solace to our souls? But he doesn't stop there because 
not only does God know us, he is also here with us, right? So this brings us into the second section of the psalm, right? If you look through verses 7 through 12, David describes God's omnipresent nature here, his, his ever-presence being everywhere. Not only is that he's everywhere, but that God's intentional pursuit of us is both relentless and out of a place of compassion. So if you were to look through that text again, you will see that this section begins with almost this poetic, like beautifully poetic writing uh, of... Um, of, of how, how there's nowhere one can go or even to flee to be a part of the presence of God, to be apart from the presence of God. So the text then goes into two sets of contrasts, right? The, the very next thing, uh, David pins the heavens against the depths, right? And, or in some translations, it translates the depths as the grave, right? The heavens against, against the graves. Uh, and then he goes and pins the dawn against the sea, Right, So what, what these contrasts are basically drawing is that the first set of contrasts were to essentially say that if I were to die, it doesn't matter if I were to ascend up to heaven or if I were to be buried down in my grave, God will be there. The second set of contrasts is basically saying that it doesn't matter if I were to go as far east as the wings of the dawn, right? basically the place where the sun rises, or if I were to go as far west as the edge of the sea, so knowing the context of this his history, he's referring to the Mediterranean Sea, who, which, which is due west to where this kingdom was, right? Even there, God will also be there. And these metaphorical analogies were not meant uh, to be read literally, but they illustrate the vastness of God's presence in the midst of these polar extremes, that God is between these spaces, that God is with us in all places imaginable. And then this section finally closes... Uh, with this, with this uh, description of even if we were to hide ourselves in darkness, that God's presence is like the light, and light obliterates darkness, that the, the darkness cannot overcome the light, and that the pursuit of God's presence for us is both stubborn and relentless, and that nothing can change its course. So once again, the picture of God that's painted here can perhaps bring up some mixed emotions in us, right? How does it make you feel to know that there is a God who is absolutely everywhere and that you have actually no such thing as true personal space or real uh, privacy with God? How does that make you feel? Right? Again, if you are someone who is acutely aware of your sins, your brokenness, your imperfections, the only, it's only natural then when we are facing a God who is all up in your business that we can feel a deep sense of conviction, right? Can it not? But once again, I want to argue that perhaps this also was not the intentions that God had for us uh, when it comes to uh, the scripture saying that he is ever-present to cause us a, a feeling of shame or guilt or even fear, right? In fact, when you look at the Bible, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was when he was writing about the birth of Jesus, he cited the prophet Isaiah. What did he say? Right? He said that they will call him Emmanuel, Right? What does Emmanuel mean? Man, Emmanuel means God with us. Right? So the coming of Jesus was essentially the fulfillment of the prophecy, God with us. That, the, uh, that, that, that God with us is coming to be the protector and defender of his people. That Jesus bore the name God with us. And in his ministry, he fully embodied God with us. So if you were to look into the gospel story, you will see that during his ministry... Uh, Jesus was tell always telling different parables to illustrate different 
life lessons, right? And there's this one particular parable where Jesus, uh, where, where Jesus illustrated the ever-present character of God. If you remember, if you're familiar with this, in, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a father who had two sons. Ring a bell for anybody? Yeah, so um, the younger son, right, uh, basically came to his father to ask for all of his inter- inheritance that was actually meant to be given to him after his father had actually passed away, but he wanted it now, and he took it, right? And, and, and he left, and he squandered it all on all the different pleasures of this world. And when he finally descended into his ultimate low point in life, he finally came to his senses, and he decided that he was going to go set out for home to go and beg for his father's forgiveness and to be vowed to be taken back essentially as a slave, right? Because he no longer see himself as deserving to be called his father's son. So that's kind of the attitude that he went off, not knowing how his father would react, right? But from far off the way, the father who had been waiting and watching uh, for him every single day saw him coming over the hillside and he decided to pick up his garment and ran to him and embraced him and lavished him with everything that he had and then ultimately to restore his identity back to the undeserving status as his son, as his beloved son, right? This is what happened when you guys are familiar with the story of the parable of the lost son, right? And then meanwhile, the older son saw what happened, and he felt like he had been loyal all these years. He began to grow bitter, and he began to feel underappreciated, and he resented his father for that. And he'd been, he, he had seen himself as been, been slaving for his father all these years, and yet he was getting nothing. He began to grumble against his father. And yet this father... His posture, once again, was out of a gracious place in coming to pursue him and begging him to come back in, to be invited into a life of abundance where everything he had was his. Right? We oftentimes see this story in the Bible that says the parable of the lost son, but the title of this, of this story should really be the parable of the lost sons. Right? It should be plural because both of his sons were lost in different ways. And Jesus told this story to illustrate the picture of, the, of God the Father being like this Father who watches and waits, shamelessly running out in pursuit of his lost children and graciously inviting them into his goodness that is undeserved. See, for a long time, I actually never really knew how I was supposed to respond to that parable because if I were to be honest to you, I was kind of like a good kid, right? I never really saw myself as a younger son who was like a wasteful drifter, right? And I actually, in fact, felt more, more like the older son who kind of had always done the right things but was left with no attention. I was always wondering, where's my piece of the pie, right? But over the years, as I began to serve students on campus, I think God really broke my heart, Um, and began teaching me what it's like to have the heart of this father who watches and waits. About three years ago, I had a student named Jeff. And uh, Jeff is one of the most, like, analytical and highly intellectual students I've ever worked with. He always had this deep interest in theology. And he, at the same time, he also had a whole bunch of non-Christian friends uh, that he wanted to reach out to. So over the course of his time with us, we began to develop him into a leader who would uh, take on the charge of leading a small group and impacting the lives of students that were in his small group. Uh, And I I began to coach him every week. Uh, We will meet together every Wednesday morning uh, at 10 a.m. on the Panera Panera Bread on University Boulevard. He had to go to work at Chipotle right afterwards. So we will meet there every Wednesday morning at 10, where I will mentor him, I will coach him, and I will do my best to develop him to become the kind of man that God has called him to be. And we were really excited for Jeff, right, because he had all these potential influences 
uh, not only because of his deep love for Jesus, but because of his wide network of unbelieving friends who he wanted to reach out to. And we were ecstatic, especially when he told us that he wanted to consider doing, joining full-time ministry after he graduates. Now, halfway through that semester, Jeff got into a relationship with a young lady who was not a follower of Jesus. And he was so mesmerized by her that he began to question everything that he believed. And I continued to meet with him weekly, 10 a.m. on Wednesdays at that Panera, even after he had decided to step down from leadership, uh, just because I wanted to help him continue to navigate through that season of his life. But eventually, Jeff stopped showing up. My phone calls were never answered, and my text messages were seldomly returned. And ultimately, he dropped off the map completely from our fellowship. And it was then that God gave me his heart that is broken for the loss because as I meditated on this father who waits and watches for his son, I told Jeff one day that I will be here in Panera every Wednesday at 10 a.m. for the rest of this school year. Should you ever feel like you want somebody to talk to, I will be there. Not to pass judgment or, or to try and change your mind, just to be here to listen. So I went to that Panera every Wednesday, 10 a.m. I sat there and I waited. One month goes by, two months goes by, and then three months, and then four months. And eventually the school year ended, and Jeff never turned up. And he has actually since graduated and moved on with his life. And my heart was absolutely broken as I think back on those Wednesday mornings where I sat there waiting and hoping that he would show up. But it was also that semester that God truly gave me a taste of what it's like to have this heart of the father who watched and waited, the father who pursued after his lost son. And although Jeff never showed up, I'm hoping and my prayer is that someday he would think back on that semester and he'll remember that Jesus sat there and waited for him should he decide to come home. See, friends, is this, this is the nature of our ever-present God. That not just that he is everywhere, but he is actively pursuing and patiently waiting for us. Whether we are like the younger son who is living in sin and brokenness, or we're like the older son who is living in bitterness and cynicism, God goes through hell and high water relentlessly to pursue us. His compassion surpasses any sense of guilt or shame or fear that we might have. And this, is this not the God whom we long for? the one who will risk his own heartache to be reconciled with us. Is this not a God who is worth our total submission? You see, as God's presence goes with us into every facet of our life and every sector of our days, we must ask ourselves the question, are we truly fully surrendered to his lordship? See, one of the most influential missionaries to China in the 19th and 20th century was an Englishman by the name of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor once said this famous quote that says, if Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. You know, for a long time, I actually misunderstood that quote. You know, for a long time, I thought that when he said the Lord of all, he was referring to, like, you know, Jesus being the Lord over all people. But it wasn't until years later that I actually realized that when he said Lord of all, that if Christ is not Lord of all, he meant if Christ is not Lord over all of me, over all of you. It's a lordship issue that if Jesus isn't Lord over all of me, over every part of my life, over every area of my being, over everything that I center my identity on, then he really isn't my Lord at all. Because something else or somebody else is. 
So this morning, as we contemplate on the God who is all-knowing and the God who is ever-present, let us look deeply within and see if we are fully submitted to this God who intimately knows us and relentlessly pursues us. So we now move into the third section of this uh, of this psalm, right? Verses 13 through 18. As uh, as I mentioned earlier before, that this section communicates God's um, omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, and, and it begins with G, uh, David's self-narration of the creation of life itself, right? Uh, and this is another part of the psalm where it is filled with a bunch of different action words of God, right? If you look through it, you will see that you will see words like "you created," "you knit," "I was made," "fearfully and wonderfully made," right? "I was woven." Your eyes saw all the days ordained and written in your book, right? So what we can conclude from all these intricate details that David put into this text is that the creation of life is both purposeful and intentionally a part of God's plan. The mere fact that God is the creator of life itself reveals to us David's recognition of God's power. What do I mean by that? David recognizes that there is no other being in existence, not humans, nor forces of evil has the ability to create life, to sustain life, and to resurrect life. That this unique feature belongs only to God, belongs to God alone. And it shows that, and and because of that, it shows us that God is all-powerful because he is the one who creates life and the one who defines life. And David continues to, to, to write that not only does this God create life, but he has deep concerns over every life, that his concerns uh, are both in, uh, immense and immeasurable, more than the grains of the sand, right? And illustrating that, uh, he did not just create life out of randomness, but that each and every life was intricately crafted by his own hands, and therefore he does, his desires for each life is to thrive and to serve and find a greater purpose that each has been called to serve. So if you look at the creation account in the Bible itself, if you go to the first book, of the first chapter of the first book in the Bible, Genesis 1, right? You will see a, a, a verse there that says, God created mankind in his own image, right? In, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You guys familiar with that, right? And this is the verse where we get the well-known Latin term, imago dei, right? Imago dei means that the image of God, that each and every life was created in the image of God, and therefore each and every life bears God's given Dignity and each and every life reflects a unique image of who God is, right? So, for example, I reflect, as a Chinese-American, I reflect an image of God that somebody else who is not like me does not. But somebody else who is not like me reflects a different image of God that I do not. And only when we are together as a reconciled body from every tribe, nation, and tongue are we truly reflecting the fullness of who God is, right? Think of a picture that's made up of a mosaic. Each individual pieces reflect a part of the full image. And this is the reason why, as we continue to advance God's kingdom, we are called to cross into different cultures to allow, excuse me, to allow the gospel to reveal itself through the different peoples that has been created in his image. And we are charged to bring our different gifts all to the table, right? So if we truly believe that every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet has been created, imago dei, in the image of God, then we as the church then are not only called to protect, but also to defend the dignity of every human life. This is imperative for us to understand. 
because what is happening in the world around us right now, right? Two weeks ago, Dr. Rob pointed out that the church has been running away for a while now from engaging the issues of what's happening. Because the reality is that we live in a time where God's image bearers are exploited and dehumanized in front of our own very eyes, that the very image of God has been distorted. You would know this if you just go home today, turn on the news for five minutes, and you will see that this world does not really seem like a place where God is all-knowing, that God is ever-present, and that God is all-powerful, does it? These past couple of months, not only have we seen brokenness over, around, all over the world, but a few of them have actually hit pretty close to home. Right, about a little, a little over a month ago, on the morning of June 12th, uh, after seeing the tragic shooting of Christina Grimmie, the voice singer, right, right here in Orlando after her concert, I woke up the next morning to the sound of helicopters hovering over the skies of Orlando again. Right? And I turned on the news, and I saw that the deadliest mass shooting in modern history has taken place in our own backyard. And I was actually invited to preach at the church that I currently attend that morning. Uh, I remember getting up on that pulpit. Uh, I, felt, I just didn't feel right. I felt heavy, and I felt burdened to address what's happening because the church that I went to was literally less than, less than a mile from where the shooting happened. Uh, so, so I felt like I could not just go on and preach what I had prepared before all this happened, but I needed to talk about what happened. And I didn't really know what to do, so I began to pray. And as I prayed, this is what I said. I said that many people see Orlando as like this renowned, world-renowned destination where people can come and pay money and buy in an experience where they get to leave the real world behind, where they get to leave the outside world behind for a few days, as if the real world is temporarily irrelevant. Right? And, 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 and I pray that the church would not be a place like that that morning. Because the reality is oftentimes when we even come to church, we're kind of looking for the same experience too, right? We will come and we will worship, we will sing praises to God, all the while pretending like what's going on outside of these four walls have nothing to do with what's going on inside of these four walls. So I pray that our hearts will be broken over the things that break the heart of God for the image bearers who were killed and the families that were torn apart that morning. And not even two days after I preached that, Orlando was on national news again. You guys remember that? This time it was because a little boy had been snagged and killed by an alligator, ironically of all places, right outside of Magic Kingdom, this place that has the illusion of, of happiness that nothing bad can ever happen, Right? And then in the weeks that followed, we would see more and more and more lives of black men that were unjustly taken because of the systemic injustice, the systemic prejudice and racism that has plagued our society for centuries, right? And then we would see hate fueling hate, and we would see people responding in violence and killing police officers as well. It is a dark time that we live in. Dr. Rock gave this prophetic word calling the church to lament over these things not to turn away from engaging in these things that break the heart of God. And we know that these things break the heart of God because every human life that he had purposefully made is destroyed, right? That God's image bearer, who in this text has, has been fearfully and wonderfully made, were laying waste in the streets of America. That people whose lives that God has more concerns over than the grains of the sand, now rotting in the ground. Many of you guys know my wife, Brooke. Uh, she is a pastry chef, right? 
And over the years, she's had the opportunity to fill some pretty big, complicated orders for things like weddings, engagements, birthday parties, and other events like that, uh, where she gets to fully express her creativity and innovation, making something that is both absolutely delicious and mesmerizingly beautiful. Many of you guys have tasted her desserts before. And there's been a few times where her orders were so big that she would recruit me to help with her when I get home from work, right? And we will literally stay up all night pulling all-nighters, rolling out fondants, dyeing them in matching colors, piping out decorative ruffles, and, 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 and hand-making all these beautiful flowers and butterflies out of gum paste, and then putting finishing touches with all these shiny dust, edible dust on these cakes or whatever pastry she was making, right? Now, before I was married to her, I never knew... I had, I, had this, I had no idea just how much work actually went in behind the scenes when it comes to professional baking and pastry, right? So the problem for me then here is that the more I will help her creating these beautiful masterpieces, the more attached I will feel to the project. And then the thought that in less than 24 hours, there's going to be a hungry mob that's going to come and devour it all will absolutely devastate me, right? Especially when people don't know that we actually just spent all night awake, making it look beautiful, right? The appreciation uh, appreciation level is different, right? See, when God sees the life of his people who bears his image that he has made lay waste in the street, it's kind of like me looking at these cakes that I spent all night helping to build, being consumed by this hungry mob within just minutes, right? But the difference is cakes are actually meant to be enjoyed by people. That is its purpose, But humanity was never meant to be consumed by evil. So with each news feed that pops up on my Facebook after another, uh, one after another, one after another of seemingly innocent black men that have been gunned down, God weeps as he looks down and sees his masterpiece resting, not in peace, but in pieces. So how do we move forward from here? If God is truly all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful, then why is it that we find ourselves in this hopeless despair? Where is the hope for resolution? The answer, I believe, is actually found in the last part of this psalm, from verses 19 through 24, right? This part of this psalm is actually supposed to be talking about God's eternal goodness, right? Uh, It's not very obvious to us at first, right? Oftentimes, when we actually study this part of this psalm, we tend to stop before we get here because this fourth and final section of this psalm, at least on face value, seems like it's a little bit messy. It's almost a little bit too chaotic or even too dangerous for us to talk about, right? But as we arrive in this section, you will see that David begins to almost take a different tone. He seemed almost a little bit angry. He seems almost hateful. He seems almost a little bit too tired to keep writing. And he seems to be asking the Lord to wage war against his enemies with a lot of aggression and angst, does he not? So how does it all make sense? How how is this any good news? More importantly, how does this section actually give answers to the hopeless despair that we find ourselves in? I think what we can conclude from here is the concept of God's omnibenevolence, the, the, the nature of God's eternal goodness. It doesn't really seem to make sense, right? Because how can God be eternally good when we are constantly confronted with evil in this world? But if you look carefully into this text, interestingly, you will see that you will find ourselves actually at the intersection between God's justice and mercy. That God is both just and merciful. 
that as we found in the last section, that the reality of the world that we live in is that the world is in a broken state and humanity is entrenched in despair from the sin that has brought into this world. And humanity is ultimately in a hopeless state unless something is done about it. And the only uh, uh, resolution in a predicament like that is for a God who is eternally good to come and restore it by bringing the evil to justice and by showing mercy to the oppressed. As David wrote in this part of the psalm, uh, you will see that the first four verses almost seem like he's crying out for God to bring judgment and deliverance into the world that he knew. And then the last two verses in that section is a statement of self-examination and then also a pledge to align oneself with the eternal will of God, right? You will see that it begins with kind of David addressing the issue of brokenness and pleading for God to act. And then he takes a posture of almost repentance before the Lord, right? And then the last statement, he commissions himself to join God's restorative movement for the world. In the grand scheme of things, is this not the gospel message that we know? That there's this God in his eternal goodness designed the world for good and his original intention was for the world to be good. But humanity in our weakness allowed the world to be damaged by evil. Right? But God loves us so much that he didn't want to just leave us that way. So he himself came into this world and paid for all the wrong with his own life. And in doing so, he began a revolution to restore this world into a better place. And those of us who hear this message and put our faith into this message are now called to be sent out as agents of both restoration and agents of reconciliation to the world. That Christ's finished work on the cross has reconciled humanity to its Father. And while we still live in this broken world, we live in the now but the not yet. And as we wait for Christ's return to bring full restoration to the whole world and all of humanity, we wait as the agents of restoration aligned with God. And as we wait, right, this final statement, this very last verse of this chapter of this psalm teaches us to model ourselves after this God who is all-knowing, who is ever-present, who is all-powerful, and who is eternally good. We are called to embody this incarnate God who intimately knows humanity, and that is the reason why we put ourselves and embed ourselves into the slums of this world so that we might know his people who are lost, who are living in despair in these places, and to let uh, and to, to restore the hope in them that there is a God and that this God knows them. Right, we are embodied to, uh, to we are we are called to embody the compassionate God who relentlessly pursues humanity, and that is why we go to places like the Dominican Republic or to Ecuador or dare I say to the Paramore District of Orlando on the west side of I four or to the Orange Blossom Trail area or to Eatonville or to Pine Hills, right? To let the marginalized and oppressed people there know that the that this God not only sees them but this God. And his ever-presence is there with them. We're also called to embody the powerful God who purposefully created humanity, right? And that is the reason why we continue to come into a gathering like this. And we continue to push each other to grow and to find our purpose and our calling so that we might go and bring life to the ones who are exploited and dehumanized. And finally, we are called to embody the stubborn God who is committed to restore humanity so that we might be sent into the world to lift up the oppressed, to set free the captive, and to show the world that Jesus Christ, the liberator and the restorer of all things, has come.
So to close our time together, I'd like to offer a few ways for us as a congregation to respond because the question that this psalm now begs is that how can God be truly all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, and eternally good if the church itself does not embody a place of belonging for all? So two weeks ago, Dr. Soon Chung Ra gave a prophetic call, right, for us as a predominantly Asian-American church to join the table of this difficult conversation around racial injustice and systemic oppression. So I want to offer us a few practical ways to actually do that uh, as, a response, uh, as a response to what is actually happening in our nation. And I do that. So uh, first, I want to talk to the musicians in this congregation who leads this congregation oftentimes in worship every week, right? Uh, one of the ways that we can step into engaging justice and advancing reconciliation is by first examining in ourselves and to recognize perhaps what is missing and perhaps what we do. When Brooke and I were in college, uh, we attended a traditional black church in the inner, in the inner city of where we went to college. Uh, and that's uh, one of the greatest things that I learned uh, from that season of my life, from that community, is to see the profound ability that the black community has to turn great suffering into deep joy. And, and that was oftentimes expressed through gospel-style music uh, during worship. Uh, so, like, if you've ever been to a black church, you would notice that worship in a black church is a very, very communal experience, right? There is complete freedom to move. Right? And there's usually no screen or projected words of lyrics of the songs that we're singing. But instead, uh, uh, the, the, the singing is actually done through uh, almost like a call and response leadership from those who are up front. Right? And then the, the, the song types of gospel music is usually not very, not very wordy at all. It doesn't have all these complicated theologies like a hymn does. Right? It's not very wordy, and it has a lot of repetition. Right? It begs the question of why is it? Why, why does gospel music have these characteristics? If we know the history, that during the time of slavery, when gospel music was being developed, they were literally songs that were being sung in the fields by, uh, by a suffering group of people as a cry pleading for God to send his deliverance. So experiencing worship in a context like that has completely cha- changed my life and deepened my understanding of what worship and lament looks like. If we truly believe that Jesus did not come as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant, then I want to say that there's probably no other demographics in this country who knows more about being a suffering servant other than the black community. So my challenge to you is this. I want to ask you that if we really want to embody the God who is omni, omniscience, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omnibenevolence for all, then why is it that we tend to only adapt contemporary worship music from organizations like Hillsong, Passion, or Jesus Culture? Nothing wrong with those organizations, right? But why don't we ever consider worshiping our multicultural God through other expressions like gospel music as an opportunity for us to stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters who are hurting right now and also to help us gain a deeper understanding of who God is that is expressed through that context. Why is it that we keep sending teams to Dominican Republic and to Ecuador in that, uh, in that this congregation's second largest demographic now is actually our Latino brothers and sisters, right? And why is it that we don't sing a song from time to time that is in the heart language of these people that are in community with us and that we serve. 
A second way to respond. Um, there's been a letter uh, that's been drafted by a group of Asian Americans that's been circulating the Internet in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Right? And it has been translated into almost every Asian languages as an attempt to help us start conversations with our parents and our families about why Asian Americans care about Black Lives Matter and need to engage in the issues in a time like this. You see, because the generational gaps and the language barriers and the differences in our upbringing and the non-confrontational nature uh, of our culture, many of our families have purposefully discouraged us to actually engage in these issues. But if we truly believe that all are created in the image of God, then as Christians, we are called to speak for those who don't have a voice. We're called to stand for those who are oppressed. And this is an opportunity for us to stand in solidarity with them and for us to mourn with those who mourn, right? There is a cost when, when we choose to speak out against injustice, just like there is a cost when we choose to follow Jesus. Over the last several years, uh, as I grew to become more and more vocal against injustice, I have faced retributions myself, right? I've actually, over the years, lost several people. Who, so those of you guys that understand the nature of my job, I am a missionary to the college campus, and my support base is, is, uh, is, is brought together by people who are willing to contribute financially in order for me to be on campus. And over the last several years, I have lost donors who stopped giving to my ministry because of my stance of choosing to be vocal in times of injustice. But here's my thinking, is that if my black friends, if my black brothers and sisters, if my black students that I serve are living every day fearful of whether or not they're going to live through an interaction with the police, and the worst thing that can happen to me is losing financial support, then that is the least I can do by speaking out on behalf of them. So count the cost. How will we as a church count the cost? I want to offer you one last powerful way to respond. Uh, the same night two weeks ago when um, Dr. Rob preached here, I had the opportunity that night to go to a Black Lives Matter peaceful rally and march in my community that's just two miles from my house in downtown Orlando. It was a huge learning experience for me, right, because I met a lot of new people. I heard their stories of struggle and in in their experience through all this stuff that's happening. And in and, 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 and different ways, I tried to bring some kind of solace uh, to those who are hurting. And, and I remember seeing several young black men that were wearing shirts that have a target painted on them with the words that says, am I next? And the sight of that brought tears to my eyes because I also saw Jesus standing next to them while the world is trying to silence them and dismiss their plight as not reality. I also remember seeing an old lady who was dressed in her Sunday church clothes, an old black lady dressed in her Sunday church clothes out there marching with us, even though she couldn't walk very well. Uh, there was a young man that was helping her walk, and they were praying the whole time as they were marching. And to think that she's probably old enough to have been around and lived through the civil rights movement and she is still here in her elderly years, literally fighting for the same thing. That brought tears to my eyes because I also saw Jesus standing next to her, affirming her while the world around her is trying to dismiss her pain by shouting, all lives matter. I also remember that almost all the leaders who took the stage, who spoke there, uh, as, were, from, were people from the Muslim, were leaders from the Muslim community. And I wondered to myself, where is all the Christian leadership in this issue that clearly breaks the heart of God? 
And I also remember that seeing the more than 2,000 people that were there, most of them were black with a significant representation of people from the Latino community and the white community, but only seeing maybe a handful of two or three Asian Americans beside myself. And I wondered to myself, why aren't my people who clearly benefit clearly benefit from the civil rights uh, that many of our black brothers and sisters have shed blood, sweat, and tears fighting for. Why aren't we here? So I want to let you know that tonight, so like this was two weeks ago, downtown Orlando, right? Last week, last Sunday, there was a similar march that happened on the north side of town in Sanford where Trayvon Martin was gunned down, right? And tonight at 6 p.m., there's another peaceful rally here on the west side of town. Uh, Tonight at 6 p.m. at Alonzo Williams Park in Apopka, Florida, uh, people will be gathering to share and to demonstrate and also to fight for the things that are going on. And this is an opportunity for the Asian American Christian community to show up, to represent our God who sees, who knows, who is here with the people that are in a deep place of need right now, uh, to show that our God is here with them and he is there to bring restoration to the dignity that has been robbed. I went to the march of my community two weeks ago in downtown Orlando, and I want to challenge you here on the west side of town to sacrifice whatever you may have already planned for tonight and to go and be agents of restoration and agents of reconciliation tonight by showing up to pray, to listen, and to learn. Some of you guys might be feeling like really nervous right now. You might be feeling like, what would my friends think of me? But if we truly believe that this, that every life is created in the image of God, then this, not, this does not make it a political stance or a, a liberal agenda, as some people might suggest, but that this is at the center of a gospel issue that we are called to engage. So two years ago, uh, I remember during the unrest of Ferguson, while all that stuff was still fresh, I was at one of our staff conferences, uh, and one of the seminars that was offered was actually a seminar about how Christian communities can engage with the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of my friend and colleagues who was a black man who was on staff with us in Tennessee uh, was teaching that seminar. And he said something uh, that was both deeply profound to me and also deeply troubling to me. He said that these issues of injustice, they are not new. They have always been happening. But what is new is that this is the first time in the civil rights history where the church has chosen to sit out. How will we respond? See, one day the world is going to look back on the events happening today in today's American history. And my prayer, y'all, is that the church would not be absent from that history, but that in this time of distress, in this time of hopeless despair, that we would have played an active role in showing the world a God who knew them deeply, a God who loved them dearly, a God who pursued them relentlessly, and that the and that we would have played an active role in ushering God's work of justice and mercy and restoring the broken image of all of humanity back to this benevolent God who created them. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, just the, the space um, for us to, to process something that's hard, that's deep, that's, uh, that's perhaps uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, but, Lord, we know that you were always someone who stirred up those who were comforted 
and call them into discomfort for a greater cause that is for your kingdom. But will we respond in such a way? Will we take these attributes that this beautiful, this beautiful psalm that, that, that has described you to be, and will we as a church embody these characteristics and to bring the hope to this world who is living in hopeless despair right now? So we ask that you empower us, you will give us uh, more opportunities to converse, to dialogue with each other in spaces like house church, and that you will give us the practical steps to actually partake in doing something about this, that we would not sit in silence, that we would not sit in avoidance, but that we would deeply engage in this issue for your kingdom cost, even if it has a deep cost to our personal lives. We love you, we praise you, and we submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us all stand.